Real Talk listeners, welcome back. We are kicking off a new series. Obviously, we're always constantly focused on one main priority, and it's a conversation and a topic that we constantly drill into you. And I know you guys are like, why do we keep talking about DEI? But diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace is huge, huge, huge in every topic. And it somehow transforms and intertwines into every conversation we have. And you're going to notice that dynamic today. Today, we have a guest lineup outside of typically Michelle and I. Keith is here, as well as we have one person in addition, a special guest here, Heather Hansen, who helps top global professionals show up, speak up, and inspire action in changing the world. She is an author of the book, Powerful People Skills, and has contributed to three additional books. And we're going to talk a little bit about one of her additional books, Unmuted, that just came out here. So we're going to introduce Heather. Heather, welcome. So glad to have you. Hello. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited for this conversation today. Yeah, we are excited as well. It's a great opportunity. I know we've delved into your book a little bit, and we've been super excited to have this conversation with you. And it's just kind of spiraled a lot of our discussions from an HR perspective with Michelle, Keith, and I. Just a little bit further when it comes down to a lot of the topics that we're going to discuss here today. Super interesting because it has us thinking, I know you like in some of uh, the conversations you've had, you've been on TED Talk and you've had some recommendations. So we started spiraling. I think Michelle said she even bought one of the books you recommended. And so we get into some of those little rabbit holes where we just start linking into different avenues of like conversation, communication, and how we really cross collaborate on a global level. So we are so excited to have you. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, there's so much to it, isn't there? You know, between communication, identity, the way we're showing up in the world, the way we're showing up at work, authenticity, adaptability. I'm really looking forward to dig into all of this. Let me just uh, share everybody's sentiment and, and say, welcome, Heather. It's, it's a pleasure to have you here. So we wanted to ask you about your, your book, Unmuted. What can you tell us about the book and what were some of your goals with this book? I think my primary goal with the book was really to inspire those who have not been speaking up in the world to begin sharing their brilliance. I think that we have been listening to the same people, the same demographic of people for a very long time. And as I look around the world today, I think this can't be it. We're facing so many extreme crises all over the world in all different areas from environment to political conflict to you name it. I just refuse to believe this is the height of human potential. There has got to be more. And so I hope that with Unmuted, it inspires people to show up, speak up, and inspire action to follow their passions in the workplace, in the community, in their families, in the larger world, because we need those ideas and that innovation. It has to start somewhere, and it starts with us. Yeah, agreed. And you know, we spend a lot of time in this podcast and just in general talking about how so much of an organization's success starts and ends with the leaders. And so if you can talk a little bit about how Unmuted supports the leaders and supports leaders and ultimately the teams that they support. Well, we know that environments of open communication where there's equal talk time among teams, that these are our high producing teams, high performing teams. So Unmuted is trying to give a toolkit or a skill set to leaders and everyone in the organization really to know when to press mute and listen, when to speak up, how to do so in a way that's respectful of our differences, how to become more self-aware in our leadership practices and how we are appearing before others 
it's trying to lead people through that process of creating a more unmuted company culture, as well as lifestyle in the sense of how we're showing up at work through that authenticity, but also knowing how to be flexible and adapt to others. One of the things that you mentioned, and I'm going to apologize if I get the quote incorrect, but I want to refer back to something that you said in the book. So you introduced it by talking about the TED Talk, how to talk so that people want to listen. And then you that in a way that honestly, and I heard it again when I was driving down the road today, I had to pull over and text myself that line because you spun it upside on its head, basically. And you said how to listen in a way that encourages people to talk. So as a leader, that's critical. Can you tell me a little bit more about your philosophy around that idea? Yeah, because my background is in communication skills, so much of communication is focused on the speaker. We're constantly focusing on the speaker. They're too hard to understand. They don't speak clearly. Their communication skills aren't good enough. And we're always trying to train that person to have better presentation skills or to speak more clearly, whatever it might be, articulation training or what many call accent reduction, which I am completely against. And so we have a lot of focus on this idea of how to speak so people will listen to me. How can I be more persuasive? How can I be more influential? But I do want to turn that around. I think the key is in learning how to listen so that people want to speak up. And that means as leaders, we have to give space for that. We have to build relationships. We have to create psychological safety in the organization so people feel comfortable coming to us with new ideas. There are so many leaders out there. We've just seen this in the great awakening, great reorganization, (laughs) whatever you want to call it. Um, People want more when they come to work. And there have been so many examples of companies that even ones I've worked with where the leaders have put out surveys saying, how do you feel about remote work? How many days would you like to be back in the office? We are being inclusive. We want to hear your views. When in reality, leadership has already made the decision. They have no intention of really listening to the results of this survey. They're just trying to get a pulse of how do they feel, but they don't actually have any plan to implement based on that feedback. If that's the way we're running our leadership, we are not going to be having people speak up and share their ideas with us. We as leaders have to, and any leader has to be able to listen, truly respect the opinions and respond in a way that acknowledges the contribution, that accepts the idea. You don't necessarily have to agree with it, but that you really are listening. And it's not just fluff. And right now, I think we're seeing a bit of fluff in a lot of organizations who aren't really towing the line when it comes to living their values. And that's going to backfire. That's going to backfire. As you may have discovered by listening to some of our podcasts, I tend to be direct of the three of us. Maria tries to tone me down a little bit, but I'm going to give you an example and I'm going to ask you to give me some either tools or talk tracks to have the following conversation. So I have a friend who I tend to call him a grammar Nazi because he's a little ridiculous And I was talking to him the other day, and actually it was after I listened to your book the first time, so it was a couple weeks ago, and I was referring to how we need to create space, regardless of whether someone understands our language or not. And his response was, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm totally okay with English as a second language. When those people don't have good grammar, totally okay with that. But if you were born 
in the United States and you should have learned English the way I did, I am no longer okay with your poor grammar. So I won't tell you what I said. There might have been some profanity in it. <laughs> you said what I'm probably thinking right now, but, but let's work through this. <laughs> but yes, let's work through this. How do you approach those situations? Yeah, this is a really good example of the bias that's built into our culture around language. It underpins everything. And that kind of mentality is really dismissing all of the inequality and discrimination that we know is within the American landscape. Not everyone has the same opportunities for education. Not everyone has the same teachers, the same access to good schooling of different levels, access to higher education. There are a lot of reasons why grammar might sound different. And what's really horrible about the grammar Nazis is that these people are not linguists in any sense of the word because linguists do not talk about language as right and wrong. Linguists are focused on how the language is used and how we create understanding. And that's really the core of it. It's about connection, not perfection. And there is no perfect English. There is only the English that is being used. And as we negotiate meaning in a conversation between two people. So what one person believes is correct and proper could be completely different for someone else who speaks a different variety of English, a different dialect, comes from a different part of the United States, uses different terminology. When you go off to university, that was one of the first things we noticed when we mixed up with people from other states for the first time. And it's like, oh, I say soda, you say pop. What do you mean you say pop? That's not the right word. What are you talking about? And that's such a basic example. But it gets so much worse when we put this into a a business context because people aren't getting the job if that guy is the hiring manager and he's not promoting people based on the fact that they wrote an email with a grammatical error that he believes isn't good enough. And that's a super huge problem. When I meet people who think this way, I simply try to ask some interesting questions like, did you understand what he was saying? You understood the message, right? Even with that little error, he left the S off of work when it should have been he works. He said he work. You understood it though, right? So didn't communication really happen? I mean, what's really the problem here? Is it more about you or more about him? And I just try to get people to start thinking about it from the listener perspective of why does that trigger me so much? Why does that bother me? And a lot of times it's because there's nothing else to pick out of that person's argument. So we zoom in on the, the grammar. It's the only thing we can tear apart. I think it has a lot to do with the self-esteem and security of the individual. I'm sorry to say if your friend is listening, um, <laughs> but this is really what's happening underneath it all. I love that. And I actually, you mentioned a number of times in your book, you talk about how being curious and I like how that's exactly how you just spun that, which was to ask interesting questions and dig a little bit deeper. I think that this linguistic discrimination is the last acceptable form of discrimination in our society. People don't really recognize it or realize it exists, and they don't realize how deep it runs, how it is connected to discrimination according to socioeconomic status, an elitist attitude, a classist attitude, but also a very racist one. We have different dialects of English just looking at the United States right now, not even taking into consideration the rest of the world, but think about what we actually call African-American vernacular and Latino 
English. And these are specific varieties that are perfectly acceptable, that have their own rules, their own vocabulary, their own way of code switching between languages at times. And they are completely acceptable for those specific communities. And who are we to say that there's something wrong with that when we as well can easily understand them, but it's our own biases, the way that we view that particular community or group of people that is coloring, no pun intended, but coloring the way that we view them. And that's really dangerous, really dangerous. I suspect that it has something to do with the fact that we would take the communication that we would use and consider it a skill in there or anything other than the way we communicate would be considered a lack of skill. Exactly. But again, I think that's us deluding ourselves and not really looking at it honestly. Exactly. And it really depends where you were born and raised and in what community were you privileged enough to be born into an accent that is considered prestigious in the United States? Or were you born in the southern states where you're typically looked at as a little bit dim, but very hospitable and friendly and nice, but not the smartest? We have these biases that are widespread, that are reinforced by the media, by Disney films, by everything that we watched growing up. And that creates a cultural norm and stereotype that many, if not all of us carry, we all carry different ones, but we have to start becoming aware of what are the ones that I carry? Where did they come from? Why do I think that way? Why am I triggered by that? And does it really matter in the grand scheme of things uh, how a person speaks? Or is it more important that I get to know what they're meaning and their message and what they stand for? That's what's most important. I suspect we've been talking about already, but there's a specific phrase that you use in your book, authentic adaptability. And if you could talk a little bit about what you mean by that. In all honesty, that was the hardest chapter for me to write in the entire book was the chapter on authentic adaptability, because I do believe in authenticity, that we should show up, that we should be ourselves, be true to our values. But it bothers me so much when people use authenticity as an excuse or a shield to be jerks. Well, this is me. This is who I am. You, I'm being authentic. You just have to deal with it. I don't think that is fair. And I think that we've taken authenticity to an extreme where people are misinterpreting it. So what I try to talk about with authentic adaptability is the ability to show up and adapt to the surroundings, adapt and be flexible to others, other ideas, different ways of doing things, as long as we are still remaining true to our values. And there are many things that we can do that to adapt and respond to others in a polite and respectful way and have that sense of curiosity and learning about others that is not going to directly kill our personal values. And in reality, very few people even know what their values are. They show up and, oh, I need to be authentic to my values. Well, what are your values? Well, I don't really know. They'll say something like integrity. <laughs> you know, Everyone says integrity. There's the canned response of the proper values. But what does that mean in behaviors? What does it mean in real life in the workplace? We need to know how to adapt and respond to others in a respectful way and yet still show up as our authentic self in terms of the values that we hold dear. And that's the balance I was trying to create in using that terminology. I feel like one of the things that you've definitely accomplished is putting some clear definition around authenticity. I have struggled with that term in particular, but I think reading your book helped me to see myself in a different way. Specifically how you talk about you show up different, but your values stay the same. Because how I show up with my family 
is different than how I show up with Maria on a podcast and different than how I'm going to show up with my client tomorrow morning. And in the past, we have had it drummed into our heads that if you're showing up different, you're not being yourself. But I am. Yeah, I don't agree with that. You know, I am still myself, right? I'm not going to talk to a CEO of a company the same way I talk to my kids, but I'm still myself, right? So I'm so glad that resonated with you because that's the way I really feel about it. That authenticity does not mean that we show up in an identical fashion with everyone in every place. That doesn't make any sense to me. When uh, I'm just thinking here, playing a little bit of devil's advocate, that from a leadership perspective is, you know, our leaders may push back on this and say, well, we're saying that we have to allow people to be authentic with their language, but I can't be who I am, right, as a leader. And my response to that, to give you my thought on that, my response is that is as a leader, we have an obligation to serve our employees, not the other way around. But I'm curious to think about what you would say about your response to how leaders can be more adaptable while still maintaining their authenticity as a leader. That's a really interesting comment. I think leadership has really changed and our expectations of leaders have changed. It used to be that leaders could be bulldozers. They could say and do whatever they wanted, that there was a certain amount of prestige in that as well, to be the big boss, the big man. And I think we've seen a massive, massive shift in this, that poor behavior will no longer be tolerated. And if that is your authentic self, then it's time for you to start working on yourself because that's not proper behavior for any human. We should have respect and understanding for each other. And if people are actually wearing as a badge of pride, the hardliner, well, I say it as it is, and I just tell people direct, and I have no care for other people's feelings. Is that really something you want to wear as a badge of honor? And I know we have leaders like that that are still hanging on to this, but I think in this new wave of work and the future of work, to use one of the great buzzwords, we're going to see a massive shift in this, and that's not going to work anymore. Leadership changes, and I think we will begin to see people with that type of attitude not getting to those leadership ranks because that's not the type of leader people want to follow. And now that element of influence is important. And we want to follow people we believe in, who we connect with, who we see ourselves in, who we believe are good role models, are good people, not just good leaders in the traditional sense of leadership. So I think we're going to see massive shift there. But I do understand that argument. And I think that's the argument people try to hide behind of, well, why do they all get to be authentic and I don't? Well, because you're a jerk. That's why. (laughs) (laughs) Start being a good person. Start being a good person. But of course, we all define that differently. It's very subjective. So I absolutely understand the hypocrisy you're bringing up here, Keith. I, I think it is a very valid argument. Well, you mentioned values earlier and how most people don't know necessarily what their values are. And I think where the confusion happens is that people think about their own experiences as what their leaders were to them. And they say, oh, well, that's who I am as a leader because that's what I know. Similar to our parenting styles, right? We grow up with parents that act and behave a certain way. And it's very difficult for us to break that pattern as we pass on those same possibly negative traits to our kids. And and it's the same with leadership. We learn from those, our role models, and we're copying. We're simply copying and stepping into those roles. But over time, those change. And at some point, we have to break the pattern, right? There are lots of leaders that are committed to growth and change. And I think with lots of development topics, 
one of the biggest hurdles we see with developing leaders is how do I go to my team and start acting differently, right? Than I've always been. It's awkward for me, right? My team is going to start thinking, what's up with this person, right? So how would you recommend they start if they're committed to making some positive changes and committed to growth? How could they start to make those changes? That's a great question. I think it's about baby steps, baby steps. I think a lot of this started happening through the pandemic. It was interesting when we all shifted online, moved online, a lot of leaders sort of panicked. And I would actually have some of my clients calling me saying, Heather, what are your other clients doing right now? What are you talking to them about? What programs are you running? Can you just do the same thing for us? Because I really have no idea what to do. And really, we all knew the key was be human, be vulnerable, be empathetic. Yeah, but I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to touch that. I don't even know where to start. What do I do? (laughs) And it's a little bit ironic that we didn't know how to do that and a little bit scary. I think we've progressed quite a bit just through these two years, but some of those first baby steps that I was encouraging these leaders to start were simple things like maybe just a weekly newsletter. It could just be a short email. Even better, some of them started doing a weekly video. Sunday afternoon, they'd pick up their phone and they'd just do a quick video saying, oh, this is what we did this weekend with the family. This is how we're managing the restrictions. This is what I see at work and how we're moving forward. Sometimes it was work-related. Sometimes it was a little more personal. Sometimes it was something personal that made them reflect on something at work. And it was just a baby step of opening a conversation with their people. Some other leaders went a little bit too far, I thought, and they said, I'm going to be human. I'm going to connect with every single one of my reports. And I had one person who said, yes, I'm doing weekly calls with everyone on my team. And I said, oh, wow, that's wonderful. And and I was thinking maybe he had five people on his team. said, how many are on your team? He said, 40. And I said, whoa, 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 whoa. I was doing the math in my head, you know, like how long are these meetings? One-on-one, how many days are you spending? Is this the best use of your time? There has to be a better way. So I was recommending that they find ways to do one-to-many, like a video note or an email or something just to open the conversation. Also setting up office hours saying, listen, I'm available to you Tuesdays and Thursdays from 1 to 3 p.m. I'm keeping my calendar clean. Anyone who wants to give me a call, give me a call. I'm here for you. But that is not always going to work because there are plenty of people who will never pick up the phone and call. And you need to know who they are and how to reach out to them. So really what it comes down to is beginning to build relationships, which wasn't always a part of leadership before. You sat on the high horse and there were others who were building the relationships underneath. You just over had to oversee. But now it's important that you really have those touch points, that you understand your people, that you know what's going on on the floor. That's not always happening, especially in larger organizations. I know when going back to the pandemic, when that started, one of the biggest things that stood out to me was that leaders were not used to having to trust their employees at a level that they, they were having to trust them now. And so, you know, we talk about forming relationships. Well, you know, how do you form relationships if you don't trust the person that you're trying to form a relationship with? So it kind of starts there. Yeah. And building that trust. And I mean, they were hired for a reason. You have to trust that they were hired for the right reasons, that they know how to do their job. But that was probably one of the biggest problems throughout the pandemic was that shift to having more trust. And a lot of leaders were pushed into a position where they had to trust, they had no choice. So they had to start trusting more. And now hopefully we're getting more used to that, but building trust and having empathy. And I think that starts by building those relationships, getting to know each other on a more personal level. What's driving this individual? 
What is it that they want out of their role and position? Why are they showing up every day? Why are you showing up every day? I think even leaders who know their values don't always recognize when they're being incongruent. They say they believe in freedom and then they require everyone in the office five days a week. Well, what is it really? You know, don't just pick your values off a list. I can't tell you how many coaches I've sat down with. They're like, Heather, let's find out your values. Here's a list of 200 words. Which ones resonate? That's not what it's about. You'll always pick the ones that sound good, the ones that you wish you lived up to, not the ones you actually live, right? And so it's about thinking of your actual behaviors and experiences and moments in your life where you lived those values. And sometimes you need the feedback from your team as well to say, listen, these are my values. Can you give me three examples of when you've seen me live those? Can you give me three examples of when I haven't? And start to become a little more self-aware in that sense. I appreciate that example as well. It was a topic that we were going to ask you. So you're ahead of us right there because to the point that you said earlier, most people have not stopped to think about what are my values. We inherited a bunch of opinions, right, growing up, but we haven't really thought through what is it that I want to represent to the world. Yes, that is so true. We don't even realize the values that have been given to us and the values that we actually hold. I was put to the test with that because I was raised with education being an incredibly high value in my home. I was raised to be the top of my class, which I was. You study hard, you work hard to go to a good university, to get a good job, to, you know, the typical American dream. And that was incredibly important in my household. And then I fell in love with a guy who went to trade school, was a welder, and I had to make sense of that. Suddenly the question was, wow, wait, you didn't go to university? I don't know how to deal with that. I don't know how to process that. What do you mean you didn't go to university? Well, okay, my husband's from Denmark. Trade school is a six-year-long program, two years apprenticeship, and now he happens to be you know, the COO of Southeast Asia for the same company he started as an apprentice. So I had to really think about, is education really the value for me? Is that what makes a person? Is that what determines a person's potential? Is that what determines if someone is worthy of my love? That was a value that was given to me. You know, first reactions from my family, oh, you're supposed to marry a doctor, a lawyer, a politician. A, a next, you're supposed to be the next president, the first woman president, Heather. What are you? And you're, tell, you're bringing home a welder. I mean, it was shocking for my family. And it's embarrassing for me to even share that story. This is only the second time I've shared this publicly, actually, but it's such an intense and obvious example of how sometimes what you are told to believe and raised to believe and your entire culture and society believes is not something you necessarily have to embrace and is not something that necessarily has to define you or those around you. So that's a personal story, very personal story that I always go back to, to remind myself and question, do you really believe this, Heather, or was this given to you? And we all need to go through that process. And you won't really know of those situations until you come right up and it's like a head-on collision and it throws you, it completely throws you. And then you realize, wait, why do I think like that? Why do I feel that way? Why is this triggering? What's wrong here? And that's when you start to do that work to dig deeper, but you need other people to point it out to you very often. So what other tips do you have for us as we look to develop our teams and develop our leaders? There's a lot. I think we have a lot of work to do. I think key is a lot of what we've already talked about, having a very curious 
mentality, an open mind of wanting not only to learn about differences, but also looking for what are the similarities underneath it all, even through all of our differences, we have so much in common. We're driven by the same things. We want the same things for our families, for our lives, regardless of where we're from, how we've been educated, everything else. So having an open mind, realizing that cross-cultural communication is really the same as interpersonal. I think a lot of people, especially in the United States might think, well, I've lived here in my hometown. I grew up here. I still work here. I don't need to know about cross-cultural skills. I don't need to learn about dealing with differences because we're all the same here. But even that isn't the case. The world is coming to you no matter where you are. You could be sitting in your living room, in your family home, and the world is coming to you, first of all. But even more than that, someone just down the street, down the block, could be very different from you, even though you went to the same school and had the same upbringing, similar upbringings. Look at even your brothers and sisters. You know, We can be so incredibly different and value different things. We have to have that mentality of really trying to understand, of listening to understand, not to react, respond, or give advice, but to understand one another so that we can build on each other's ideas and move forward. And I think that will be key. And that comes back to everything we've talked about with authentic adaptability as well of showing up, being true to your values, knowing what they are, doing that self-reflection and giving others the space to do the same. So we have a long way to go. I hope we'll see progress. I know we will in our lifetimes, but I think it's something that will continue for the generations to come as well. Well, thank you so much. That's all the questions I have for you, Heather. It's been a complete pleasure. I think our listeners have a lot to really digest. We would love to welcome you back because we just, I feel like, hit the surface level on how we can implement this within organizations. And there's so much to talk about. And I think it's a fantastic topic. I'm going to turn it over to you, Heather, to put a plug on for your book so that our listeners can go grab it. Where can they get it from? Oh, well, thank you for that. Yeah, the book is Unmuted, How to Show Up, Speak Up, and Inspire Action. It's available everywhere, online, all your favorite resellers, bookstores, and you will likely find it in your local bookstores as well. It's available now worldwide. You can also find it on my website, heatherhansoncom slash unmuted. And my corporate website is globalspeechacademy.com. So please also reach out to me on LinkedIn. I love to have conversations with people about these subjects. And I would love to come back again and speak to you more. I, I agree, Maria, that we've just barely scratched the surface. There's so much to these topics. So I look forward to another great conversation with all of you sometime soon. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for your time. We loved having you into this podcast. Hope you, all you listeners did as well. Feel free to reach out to us at Real Talent. If you guys have any questions for Heather, we can connect with her and follow up as well. If you guys want to get a hold of her or have any follow-ups for us for a future podcast. So thanks so much, everyone. Take care until next time. Thank you. Bye, y'all.